Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the Week in Film Tech for October 17th, 2019. This week on the podcast, we're talking about Minimix coming from uh, DMG Lumiere and Roscoe. We're talking about the Sigma FP finally has a ship date, which is a good time to talk again about the Sigma FP. We're talking about some executive shakeups. Don't normally talk about executive shakeups, but this one is worth talking about. We've got all that, no gear cage this week. But we will be having a Hey Professor all about color grading scheduling this week on the Week in Film Tech. First off, the biggest news in film tech that we are talking about this week is Sigma has released the shipping date, which is 15 days away. It's October 25th. Actually, it's not even 15 days away anymore. It's like 11 days. By the time you guys get this, it'll be like seven days. It is looming at us for their Sigma FP camera. So why is this big news in the world of film tech. So first off, the Sigma FP is sort of the second camera that has come out that much like the original Blackmagic Pocket camera really is clearly straddling that line between stills and motion, right? There's a lot of great stills-focused cameras that also do motion. The A7S, the X-H1, the uh, Panasonic S1H. These are all like very stills-oriented cameras that do nice motion. I mean, the 5D Mark II really kicked off that trend of, like, here's a stills camera that you can shoot nice video with. But they don't, you know, they still have some frustrations that don't make them quite video cameras in the way the Blackmagic Pocket, with its real audio inputs and and all of the formats it records to, uh, really, you feel like you're missing out on some features. Uh, so, Blackmagic Pocket really owned this space, and Sigma is finally coming in and being like, hey, we would like a part of that space as well. And that's the Sigma FP. It got announced in July. So if you're only a YouTube watcher, you might have missed my episode because I didn't record video there because I was in Maine at Maine Media Workshop, so it was just audio. But if you're an audio listener, you probably heard me talk about it. And the Sigma FP is fascinating. It is a full-frame mirrorless camera, and it is tiny. And the trick behind that, because full-frame sensors get really hot, shooting video gets really hot. If you guys remember from older uh, days shooting these still cameras, we were always overheating and cameras were always shutting down, you know, a video camera generates a lot of heat. And a lot of these stills cameras, when you try and do video with them, you run into heat issues. Sigma puts really, like, a very big part of their marketing and their tech specs on this is how big the heat sink is. In some ways, it's the camera body is just like a sensor and a big old heat sink. And the reason for that is it's a full-frame mirrorless. So it's a much bigger sensor than something like the Blackmagic Pocket. The Pocket 4K is MFT, small sensor. The Blackmagic 6K is uh, Super 35, roughly. So it's like medium-sized sensor. But this is a full-frame sensor. This is a big sensor for motion. And, uh, you know, like something you might see in the Arial F or the uh, Sony Venice. All of those cameras, full-frame sensor. Or, obviously, you know, the Sony A7 line has always been full-frame. That's Sony's whole claim to fame. And with full-frame, you get really great low-light which is beautiful. So the Sigma FP is exciting for that front. The Sigma FP is also exciting because of, I mean, first off, really incredible internal recording. You can do 12-bit 4K internal recording on this thing, which is super cool. Um, you're not going to be able to put that on an SD card. That's going to have to be to an SSD. But still, that you can natively go 12-bit 4K to an SSD is a really nice feature. Right now, it's only Cinema DNG RAW, which is not... Cinema DNG is a fine format, and thank you. I think it was Adobe that really promoted it. Fine format. The files are just too big to make it usable for anybody I know's workflow. I've, I've never worked on a Cinema DNG project. I don't know anybody who has. The files are just too onerous. It did in its marketing say it supports the Atomos and, uh, Ninja Inferno. Does that hint that they're going to give us RAW over HDMI and we can record ProRes RAW to the Atomos Inferno? Maybe. 
which would be interesting. I'm not 100% sure if we're going to see that or not. It would be nice. Or if we could get Blackmagic Raw out to the Blackmagic Mini Recorder or something like that. If we can get any kind of Raw over HDMI, that would be really nice. The fact that it does Raw to Cinema DNG means that probably that's something that could happen, which would be super cool. But there's a whole bunch of other features that make it super exciting specifically for filmmakers. One, if you guys remember all the drama that was surrounded when I was like making fun of the EF mount on the Blackmagic Pocket 6K, which, to be clear, I think is the right lens mount for 2019. I just wonder if it's the right lens mount for the future because you can't really adapt it to things like PL. The FP is L-mount. L-mount is an open mount. It is a cooperative mount developed between Sigma and Leica and Panasonic. So all three companies are supporting it. So the Panasonic S1H has it and some Leica cameras have it and the Sigma camera has it. And it's a mirrorless full frame mount. And you're going to have a lot of lenses to choose from, from Sigma and Panasonic and Leica, if you've, if you've got the Leica scratch. Um, you're also going to see a lot of other manufacturers probably make L-mount lenses because it's the open format, and it will be wildly available to a lot of people. So I like that it's L-mount. I also like that L-mount's really easy to adapt to EF or PL. I want to go out. I want to uh, have a really nice adapter for PL so I can use my PL lenses or LPL. Uh, I wonder if you can do L-mount to LPL. The flange focal distance might be too small. I haven't seen any of those, but you can definitely do PL. And knowing that, Sigma has actually built in a specific director's viewfinder mode that will preview on the screen the exact field of view you will get from various sensors. So you can dial up and be like, I'm shooting Alexa LF, and it will preview for you exactly what the LF frame lines would be on your sensor. So a lot of times when I'm using a director's viewfinder, it's sort of like it's close, but it's not exact. This is saying we're going to give you exact framings. So then you can switch into video mode and you can do an exact preview for VFX of exactly what the field of view is going to look like with the exact lens you're going to be shooting on, and that's going to be super cool. Would you then also want to shoot some projects on this or maybe even use this as a C camera? Absolutely. I think it's going to be very interesting in that space. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of images from it yet, but the images we've seen have been exciting, and I think Sigma is in an interesting space to do this. On the flip side, it is a standard bearer array sensor. Uh, Sigma is most famous for all of their Foveon sensors, I think we're going to see a new Foveon camera from them. Foveon is too slow in processing to do video right now that I know of, unless Sigma is, you know, wildly sped up the Foveon process somehow. We're not, today's probably not the day to go into Foveon versus Bayer. If there's a Hey Professor about it later, if you guys are curious, Hey Professor me, and I will talk about Foveon versus Bayer in a later episode. But for now, just know that it's a Bayer sensor, which is sort of, I mean, Sigma's done that before, but it's sort of an outlier for Sigma because they're better known for their Foveon sensors. And so it's sort of a really interesting little camera. I'm very excited. And honestly, i got to say, $18.99, great price point. I think it is like a very affordable price point for a very small, pocketable little camera that is mirrorless and has a really adaptable sensor. I think it's, I think you're going to see projects shot on it really soon, but I also think you're going to start to see a lot of filmmakers have it just as like they're all around. This is the best director's finder around kind of thing. So I think it's a really flexible platform. The big drawbacks I see in it right now are we don't know if it's going to do raw over HDMI. I don't know what its power input situation is. Its internal battery is really small. I'm sure it has a battery power input because I've seen like a lot of the press images have like Cinema setups, which have external batteries, so there's got to be a way to get power into it. I just don't know what it is. And the audio input's 3.5 mini, which is something that, you know, like most filmmakers are used to, but it's really nice having those real mini XLR inputs on the Blackmagic Pocket. It, it is one of the really nice features there to have like an actual real audio input that's like robust and you're not accidentally going to knock out. And it is kind of a bummer. I mean, look, it's a tiny little camera. It would have been really impressive if they'd fit those connectors in. I think they made the right choices 
But those are the things you're going to hear people when they're like debating what they're going to get. I think those are sort of the things that might lean someone still towards Black Magic Pocket. Is you know you've got internal Black Magic Raw. Uh, I don't think we're going to see Sigma Raw anytime soon, and or ever. Like I don't see why Sigma would launch their own Raw. I think it's going to be better if they work with Black Magic or ProRes Raw. And the audio inputs, I think, are going to be the things that you really see people flagging. Up next, DMG Lumiere is shipping the Maximix. And I wanted to talk about this specifically because this is a unit that I think a lot of people saw at Cinegear. I believe it was at Cinegear. I'm pretty sure it was at NAB. But I want to talk about it for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is that, so there's a lot of competition in this space, right? This is a full RGB. It's actually beyond RGB. It's They use six different LED colors in order to feel like they can achieve insane color accuracy. So it's not just red, green, and blue. There's lime, and there's amber, and there's other LED colors in there. It's something Hive has been doing for a few years to really give a much better color spread than you can get out of a pure RGB fixture. So that's really exciting. But the other interesting thing that uh, DMG Lumiere does is DMG Lumiere's units are designed to tile really easily. So you look at a sky panel, you look at... um who was it? Rotolite came out with sort of their X2 thing, which is sort of like moving in on sky panel space. And they're going for a very specific design that doesn't tile very easily. Yes, you can totally rig up a whole 20 sky panels together in a rig, but there's going to be a whole bunch of little like two inch gaps. Functionally, once you're three or four feet from the light, is that going to affect you? No, but it makes it less likely. It makes it less likely that you're going to put those in a scene, right? You could certainly build a set design to handle the little, what are those, soffits? Gaps between windows, gaps between lights. We're going to call those soffits. To build around something like that and use sky panels. And I'm sure we've all seen, I mean, you know, we see quasars and uh, asteras all the time in movies nowadays. I'm sure we've seen sky panels in movies. But the um, the DMG Lumiere unit, units, and first off, you guys should all be aware, first, uh, they're owned by Roscoe. So they do like Roscoe color and they will perfectly match a Roscoe gel and all that good stuff, which is, I think, a really savvy move. I know a lot of like traditional cinematographers or cinematographers who worked a lot in the... I have a tungsten light and I use gels to create my color space. Really like the fact that all the gel colors they're familiar with are perfectly recreated by the uh, DMG Lumiere mix units. Although it also does modern stuff like there's an app and you can load a photo in the app and point at a color in the photo and it'll make that color. So they do all of the like modern fancy stuff as well. So they're walking this really nice line between tradition and future fancy, which I think is a really nice space to be in. But I like the fact that the mix units are really designed to tile quite easily. So if you're at Cinegear, you're at NAB, you should probably see a display with really, like, you can get them quite close together. I mean, it's not perfectly seamless. It's not going to create, like, a photo wall. But if you wanted to build, depending upon what you are doing with them, if you are building something in a set where you want a wall of light that appears in set with incredibly small gaps between the units... I think the mix units are going to be something that you really consider and look at should be on everybody's radar. I think it should be on everybody's radar for that reason and the nice balancing of modern technology and vintage technology. I think those together are really exciting. And the Maxi Mix are coming out, I think, also October 25th. So we've got a couple of units coming there. Next up, executive shuffling. Why are we talking about executive shuffling? So the main rule I have for what I talk about on this podcast are what are the things people are asking me about in hallways? I go to a lot of places, I stop by a production company, I stop by a post house, I'm in a film school, I'm in another film school. I get stopped in the hallway a lot and there's a lot of like random chit chat. And uh, there was a lot of random chit chat this week about Michael Cioni leaving Light Iron for Frame.io. So we're going to talk about it. So first off, full disclosure, I have a book called Business and Entrepreneurship in Film. I interviewed both Michael Cioni and Emery Wells. I interviewed them both a year ago uh, because that's how long it takes to write a book. So neither of those 
interviews are particularly relevant to this moment in time, although they both talk a lot about their visions as entrepreneurs and their visions as creatives and, and people who work in the film industry and what, and so it, it doesn't surprise me that Michael Cioni has left light iron for frame IO, but it, 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 there are some interesting things to unpack here and to really look at. So first off, Michael Cioni. So for, if you don't know frame IO, frame IO is a work in progress review tool. Uh, it's really great for corporate work. It's really great for client work, music videos. You need eight people to watch something and they can all give time coded notes. And then it files right into your timeline. It's like really nice. So all the notes show up as markers and you can sort of see how they're working and it integrates really closely. In fact, frame IO integrates really closely with resolve 16, where it can even treat it as a hard drive. So you could keep all of your dailies on frame IO and then, you know, just uh, the cuts sort of automatically appear there. It's really, they're really pushing deep integration with software, specifically Resolve and Final Cut 10. Uh, those two platforms are doing some really interesting things with Frame.io. So that's Frame.io, uh, started by Emery Wells, who was uh, originally Catabolic Digital. They have the Catadata app, which is how some people might have known them. They did a lot of color grading, a lot of the early Saturday Night Live digital shorts. Michael Cioni, color entrepreneur, post-production entrepreneur, was originally Plaster City out west and then started Light Iron. Light Iron, you know, is famous for having really robust dailies workflows. Half of the productions in New York City use Light Iron for dailies. They also, uh, they do all of the David Fincher stuff. They, you know, a lot of people, they first got on the radar when they landed Fincher as a client for some early big projects. They got bought by Panavision a few years ago, and Cioni was sort of the head of the entrepreneur development team that launched the DXL, their Digital XL, which is like a red camera body, Light Iron, Color Science, Panavision lenses and accessories. It's been very popular. And now the DXL2. Uh, so it's like big sensor sizes. And the DXL famously is the one that internal lens control is like one of the big features. So all of the lenses, if it's a DXL lens to hot sensor, it's a hot PL mount. And the lens is controlled from within the PL mount. So you don't even have to put external focus hour zoom motors on. And it works with almost all of the remotes. So you, you own a C-Motion remote, you own an area remote, whatever remote it is, it can sync up with the DXL and then control the focus iris and zoom on those lenses without having to put on external motors, which is super cool. You should all check out, uh, if you go to Cinegear or NAB, you should totally check out a DXL workshop. They're super fun. Chioni, founder of LightIron, co-founder, part of a team, founded LightIron, been working at Panavision for a while. Many little companies get, I mean, LightIron wasn't that small, but you know, many companies get bought by other companies. Then the founder spends a few years at that company and then peels off to start another thing or go somewhere else. What's interesting about this is at NAB, Frame.io showed off a really interesting workflow where there was a box that attached to the back of the camera. And as you were shooting, it automatically took what you were shooting, created web proxies and uploaded them to the web. And then they would appear immediately in Frame.io. And the whole workflow was designed so that like, you know, you've got a camera at a studio in Toronto and it's shooting. And as soon as you cut, it encodes it to H264, uploads it on the Wi-Fi of whatever studio you're working on. And then the editor sitting in St. Louis, Frame.io live, immediately downloading those H264 files. It's all being managed through Frame.io and it's just appearing in Resolve. So 10 minutes after a shot's done, you're sitting in Resolve and more media is appearing. Final Cut 10 also has a lot of this functionality built in, but a lot of the demos were built around the functionality in Resolve. And that's a really exciting workflow. It is also a workflow that Michael Cioni has been predicting for a couple of years. If you've seen him do talks anywhere, one of the things he's been talking about is, you know, he built a business where they made their money on dailies, right? Like dailies was always how color and post-production houses made the bulk of their money. Finish is great, but finish is short. Dailies is an everyday business. Unfortunately, and he, then Chioni has been very upfront about this. Chioni has been saying, look, dailies are going to disappear. 
the cameras are going to make their own proxies, which they've been doing for about five years now, but there will still be like an archiving business, you know, because you're not going to upload. If you're shooting DXL or you're shooting Alexa, those files are too big to upload them over the internet. So there's still going to be a business that's going to work with, you know, tools like Frame.io, but you're going to, someone from SED is going to shuttle that drive to somewhere where it gets archived to like LTO tape and, and all of those really stable backup formats. So that's not going anywhere. That business will survive. But the business where they, you know, that's not going to be a huge budget business. It's going to be a much more like mechanical backup. But if you look at where they actually made their money lighter and it was like, you know, you got to have a colorist who's touching all those dailies and syncing all those dailies and you're interfacing with the DIT and they're using light iron software and all of that is like this big ecosystem and Frame.io and other people are working on a box that does all of it automatically and then syncs it to the cloud automatically. So it's making it to post with all of its metadata intact in a really robust, fast fashion, which is super cool. And I think that Chioni has been seeing this coming for a while. I don't know when Chioni first decided, I mean, I don't have any inside knowledge here, but I think if you are Michael Cioni, the possibility of building, one thing he said in my interview is he talked a lot about the fact that entrepreneurs are sort of restless people who are always looking at the next thing. And if you're Cioni and the DXL2 is out and you're like, okay, I've really done cool things with the DXL2, you start to look at the next hurdles and workflow. And one of the big next hurdles and workflow is that set to post step. And I think that seeing Frame.io working on that. I think it is a very smart move for everybody involved. There could be all sorts of drama that we don't even know about. Who knows? It's business stuff. But I I think it will be smart. I'm excited to see what comes from having a dedicated team that's really working on that step on bigger productions. And maybe even, you know, building some sort of frame-io box that attaches to the back of cameras, or be real, more realistically, not directly the back of camera, but probably is in the DIT station, because the DIT station is a place where we don't mind adding more weight, and then the DIT is making sure the data, the dailies are sunk, and that maybe there's a lot on them, and then they're getting kicked off to frame IO. Who knows? But I think that they're going to look at a lot of things, they're going to test a lot of things, and I think we're going to end up seeing some interesting workflow coming out of it. It also means that Frame.io is opening up a Los Angeles office, which is very cool. They've mostly been based in New York right now. Interesting thing about Frame.io, uh, all of their development is in-house. Like, they hire their own engineers, and they don't outsource very much, which I think is really cool. Like, when you go to the office in New York, there's, like, devs there building tools, which I think is a pretty smart way to do it. It's hard to outsource things that are so particular. That is Chioni leaving Lightiron and Panavision for Frame.io, but not leaving Los Angeles will still live in Los Angeles, just working at a presumably different office. I don't know where the new Frame.io office is in LA, but it'll be interesting. All right. No Gear Cage this week, because I've not been testing or playing with anything this week. We will be back with Gear Cage next week. In the meantime, here's Hey Professor. Hey Professor, this week is from Abdo Katab on Twitter. What's the average time for doing the color on a feature low-budget documentary? Abdul Katab, great question. I like to think about this in a lot of different ways, but the simplest way to think about it is commercials and music videos seem to average a day. Low-budget features seem to average a week. I don't think these are the right amounts of time to work on these projects. I think that there are a variety of other ways you could schedule that time, but they fall into those habits because of the way in which we schedule projects, right? Like it's very hard. Everybody knows it's very hard to do a half day in the film industry because it's very hard to sell the other half, right? Like I work a half day on one shoot and then I'm going to drive to the other side of town to work a half day on the other. It's just hard and awkward and like 
every once in a while when you're in a post suite, like, yeah, I'll do my morning, I'll do one commercial, and my afternoon, I'll do another. But it's super rare to do half days in the world because it's just like, that's not to say I never do half days in anything. I'll do a half day where I record a podcast or something else. But in post houses and professional environments, it's just very hard to schedule like that. So commercials and music videos, like if you're a post supervisor working on a music video, you tend to think in days of edit, days of color, days of VFX. Don't get me wrong. On a huge Lady Gaga video, do they color for two weeks sometimes? Sure, absolutely. But I've seen a lot of really big, prominent music videos with artists you know that were colored in a day uh, because that's just the habit. The same habit sort of follows true in features. What tends to happen with indie features is they get colored in five days, and I don't think that's like a magic perfect amount of time. But work tends to fill the amount of time you give it, and I see a lot of like post supervisors and producers who are sort of like budgeting it out. And they're like, all right, 12 weeks of editorial, a week of color, a week of, you know, and it should be more maybe depending upon the project. But that's just a habit people fall into because it's an easy way to do math. And so you have the five days to do it. And so you manage to fit it into the five days, whether or not it is the appropriate amount of time to do the work. I've seen many, many doc features and many, many narrative indie features that color in five days. There are a lot of reasons I don't think this is perfect. I mean, obviously, sometimes it just takes more time to do the work you want to do. I mean, you know, that movie Domino, uh, Tony Scott's movie famously colored for like two months. Granted, Domino is a very aggressively colored movie, but, you know. When you want to do interesting things, sometimes it takes time to explore and you have to give yourself a little bit of freedom and room to move. Uh, one thing I really wish happened more often, even when you're getting five days, is that it was like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then we had two days off, and then you picked up again Monday, Tuesday. Because one thing I've seen happen a lot on Indie Features, which on Indie Feature a few years ago, where they came in and they were really obsessed with this like very specific, very washy blacks, very pastel, like very aggressive look. Five-day grade, went with that look. Everyone by Friday loved it. They spent all week looking at it. They were sold on it. And three weeks later, they hated it. Time to sleep on a look. Time to... And they regraded that movie, actually. They did it in a completely second color grade. And I wonder if they'd graded for three days and then had two days off and had fresh eyes and watched a couple of their other favorite movies and then came back on Monday. It might look differently. But yeah, I mean, your average indie documentary tends to color grade for about five days. Is there a colorist out there who could probably do it in four or maybe even three? Sure, a very fast colorist who's very experienced with a well-planned thing. Absolutely. But five is, is sort of like the indie tradition in that space. I wish in general people would spend more time evolving a color look. I feel like color is, because the hardware was so expensive for so long, everyone got used to this idea of, costs so much per hour, it's like $1,700 an hour, so we're going to edit, 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 edit for weeks at a time, and we're going to take a day off from the edit and then look at it fresh, and it's going to be this long, iterative process, and we give edit all that time, and then color we get like eight hours. And you go in and you make all these decisions real fast, and then great, and you're done and you're out, because it was so expensive, but... It's not that expensive anymore. I mean, the manual labor is, but like, I'm really excited for what I think will be evolving color grading workflows where we'll start to see like people maybe do a color grading pass midway through an edit, bring in a colorist for a couple days. I mean, you see that on big studio movies all the time. The colorist is, or the color supervisor is often hired before the shoot and then is involved in the dailies and then it's evolving in an iterative process. But I think that Indie productions tend to view that as something that is the luxury of studio productions. But I actually think, I know a lot of indie colorists who would happily come in for a day every other month through the year that an indie film edits, or the six months the indie film edits doing one day a month, doing just like a rough color pass on where you are to keep evolving the look, to give people time to actually think about it and get used to it. 
Because one thing I have seen happen on indie productions and, and all sorts of productions is the director and DP will have this super heavy vision. You know, they'll do a color pass and then they'll show it to like the financier and the producer who weren't in the session and they'll hate it. And it's because they've gotten so used to the way the dailies look. So if the dailies had looked closer to what the director and DP had wanted the whole time, the producer and financier would have more time to get used to it and adapt to it and, and get attached to it too. So I think we're in an evolving space for color grades, but I think five days is probably the like indie standard on docs and, and sort of indie low budget narratives. All right. That has been the week in film tech for this week. Next week, I will have a gear cage again. And I have two books. I have Business and Entrepreneurship in Film. Check that one out. I also have a book, Color Grading 101, came out today. Uh, I finished up all the downloadable content only a couple weeks ago, so check out Color Grading 101. It's designed to be like a good entry for like directors, DPs, editors, or aspiring colorists who want like the basics intro on color. If you're digging this podcast, tell your friends, subscribe on YouTube or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Check it all out and follow me on the Twitters and the Instagrams, Charles Hain and on Recky. Alrighty. Everybody have fun making movies this week. I'll see everybody next week. And if you see me at NAB walking around in my Fierstein hat, say hello. Hello.